I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part four of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you are, please go to iTunes and subscribe, and please also leave a good review. And if you really like the podcast, I'd really appreciate you supporting it at clearshakespeare.com support. Thanks a lot. So here we are at Act 3, Scene 2 of Julius Caesar. And this is really the turning point of the play, because they've just assassinated Caesar. And the play could go any number of ways. Because it's one thing to kill Caesar. I mean, he's a man, you can do that. But then what comes next? That's the hard part. And to be honest, it seems like the part they haven't thought about very much. So it's in this scene that they get to make their case to the people for why they did what they did. And as much as this is a complicated scene for the conspirators who killed Caesar, it's also really complicated for Mark Antony, who was not as popular in Rome as Julius Caesar was. He was kind of flying under the radar a little bit in Caesar's shadow, and who's in a difficult position with the conspirators themselves because of his alliance with Caesar. Remember, Cassius wanted his guy dead. And how are they going to make their case? Well, they're going to make their case with rhetoric. And this scene, Act 3, Scene 2, is a hugely famous scene, in part because of these few very famous speeches that the characters deliver to the assembled masses at Caesar's funeral. Now, obviously, public speaking is very much a part of our lives today, but it isn't nearly as central as it was when Shakespeare was growing up in England, at least formally, because if you were getting a grammar school education, that meant learning to read and write in English, obviously, but just as much as that, or maybe even more, it meant reading and writing, and especially speaking, in Latin. These kids were reading the great Roman authors, and they were also learning the great speeches of Roman orators, and they were going on to write speeches of their own in the same style. That's the kind of rhetorical training you'd get in an English school, and of course at university, although Shakespeare never got that far himself. And that rhetorical training that everyone would get growing up in England, it's almost perfect training for someone who's going to become a poet. It's almost literally a science, by the way. You'd learn rhetorical techniques, usually what they called figures. They had fancy Greek names like anaphora and chiasmus. And you'd also learn these persuasive techniques for inspiring action in your audience. It's a very technical art, and it's a very artificial art. And so these handbooks were being published all the time about the particulars of rhetoric. And sort of the granddaddy of all those handbooks is a Greek text from the 4th century BC. It's Aristotle's The Art of Rhetoric. I actually took a whole college class on this. It's amazing. It's sort of the founding document, and it lays out all the different types and techniques of rhetoric and why they work, as well as why and when to use each kind. Some things to know about Aristotle's rhetoric. Number one, he lays out these three persuasive modes. One is called ethos, and that's based on the feelings that an audience has towards the speaker already. You know, are they the kind of person that can be trusted? If so, anything they say can also be trusted. Another one he calls pathos. This is the appeal to the emotions of the audience. We still have this word in English. And the last is called logos. That's the content of the speech itself, how it persuades with reason. So those are the modes. But he also talks about three different species of rhetoric. One is called deliberative, which is most political rhetoric. It sort of lays out recommended policies to make the future better. One is called judicial, or sometimes called forensic, which is most legal rhetoric. And it lays out past actions to figure out guilt or punishment. It's like, what are we going to do now? And the last one is called epideictic, which covers most ceremonial rhetoric. It's about praising or attacking a person or an idea. It's present time rhetoric. So whereas deliberative is about the future and judicial is about the past, epideictic is about the present. It's the kind of rhetoric you'd see at an event like a graduation or a funeral, which is relevant to our scene. So eulogies are epideictic. 
Rhetoric, by the way, isn't just for the big fancy speeches in this scene. It's also for any of those moments we've seen already or will see in the future of this play, when one character's using language to persuade another character in the scene, or when a character uses their language to put across a particular image of themselves. It's all over this play. And look, it's all over all of Shakespeare's plays, but this is a play especially full of people who are practiced in rhetoric and who use it persuasively. So keep that in mind as we're listening to these speeches in this scene. So when last we saw the conspirators, they were leaving the Senate house where they had killed Caesar, and they were going out to make their case. Remember, the people are all stirred up. They don't know what's going on. They're angry. They're worried. And so that's really what we see here. We see Brutus and Cassius come in with the plebeians, the common people, following them into the streets. And what are they crying out? They're crying out, we will be satisfied. Let us be satisfied. Satisfied, as we've seen before, is a demand to be explained to. Explain to us why this happened. So they're demanding this. This is a big crowd. If you can get really a lot of actors together on stage, this can be a fairly terrifying scene. The crowd wants their answer. And Brutus answers them. He says, then follow me and give me audience, friends. You want to be satisfied? Well, in that case, follow me and give me audience. Literally like a hearing. Listen to me. Just listen to me and you'll have your satisfaction. And then he gives a direction to Cassius, which I think people tend to skip over a lot in this play. He says, Cassius, go you into the other street and part the numbers. So Cassius, you go over to that other street and part the numbers, literally divide the crowd. Those that will hear me speak, let him stay here. Those that will follow Cassius, go with him. So whoever wants to hear what I say, stay with me. And whoever wants to hear Cassius, go with him. They're dividing up the crowd, maybe in part so that they can handle these smaller sized crowds, so that they can be heard. But what it also means is that there's a whole other speech in this play that we never get to hear. And it's from Cassius. It might even be a better speech based on what we know of Cassius. Although he's not as famous of a public speaker as Brutus, he does kind of cut to the point a little bit better. So they're going to split up the crowds, and he says, And public reasons shall be rendered of Caesar's death. They'll be rendered. In other words, they'll be offered or given. The public reasons, reasons in public, for Caesar's death, why he had to die. And as soon as he finishes talking, one of the plebeians jumps into his verse line and finishes it. He says, I will hear Brutus speak. This is one of the hardest things about staging this scene, is that you have to have individual voices rise out of this crowd. So one member of the crowd says, I'm going to go hear Brutus speak. And another says, I will hear Cassius and compare their reasons when severally we hear them render it. So the other guy says he's going to go hear Cassius's speech. And then they're going to compare their reasons when severally, severally meaning separately, we hear them render it. There's that word again, offered or given. He's literally picking up on Brutus's words. So they're going to split up, hear both of them, and then compare their reasons for killing Caesar. So Cassius goes, and many of the people go with him, but a whole bunch also stay with Brutus, and he goes up into that pulpit, that speaking platform. And another person in the crowd says, the noble Brutus is ascended. Ascended is in gone up into the pulpit. Now, as you may know, in Shakespeare's theater, there was a raised sort of balcony above the stage. So it's possible the actor playing Brutus actually goes all the way up there, or he may just step onto some sort of stair on stage. But it's more exciting to think he's gone up. That's what ascended means. He literally just goes up into the pulpit. And then that same person in the audience says, silence, everybody be quiet. And as Brutus is about to start his speech, he says, be patient till the last. In other words, hang on until the very end of my speech. Listen all the way through. He's clearly worked on this at least a little bit in his head. So he's telling them to listen all the way. And what you may already have noticed about this speech, although you'll notice it big time as we start going into it, is that it's in prose, which is such an interesting touch. There's a ton of verse in this play. It's all spoken by very noble guys with very high minds. Maybe none as much as Brutus. But Brutus chooses to lay it all on the line here. And when he does, it's in prose, which is totally out of character. I guess one take on it is that he's actually deliberately speaking to the common people more in their language, because they usually speak in prose. 
or he's not trying to sound too highfalutin. Although you'll see, there's a lot of very formal rhetoric in this. But it's very striking to see this departure at this incredibly important moment. So he starts talking to them. He says, Romans, countrymen and lovers, hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. So Romans, countrymen and lovers. Lovers as in dear friends. He's appealing to them on as many levels as possible. You're my friends, your fellow Romans, your fellow citizens, your countrymen. We belong to the same country. Hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. Be silent so that you may hear me. So he's implying he has a good cause here, but it's very formal rhetoric. We've heard this language before where a sentence will start with one word and end with the same word. Hear me for my cause. Be silent that you may hear. So that repetition of the word hear. And he goes on in a very similar form. Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. This is literally what's called chiasmus. Believe, honor, honor, believe. Believe me for mine honor, which could mean honor me by believing in me, and then have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Have respect to mine honor means something like remember that I'm an honorable person so that you may believe me. One other thing to notice here in terms of the language is the pronouns. Me, my, me, mine, mine. Number one, it means that he's really depending on their knowledge of him as an honorable person and their respect for him to get him through this speech. You know me. You should trust me. Why would I have done this if I was dishonorable? But it also in some ways betrays a weakness in Brutus, which is that he thinks a little too much of himself. He's talking so much about himself that he sort of forgets that what he needs is them. So this is going to come back later, but watch for it throughout the speech. And there's one more cycle of this same form. Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. Censure in some ways is another way to say judge. So judge me in your wisdom and awake your senses. In this case, it's probably like your intellect or your mind. Wake it up so that you may the better judge. So you may judge me better. So you see three times in a row, you have that same basic rhetorical form. Hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. One, believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Two, censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. Three, so it's that same sort of A, B, B, A form. Three times in a row. And finally, after asking them to trust him, he gets out of that form and starts talking about the most important stuff, which is why he killed Caesar. So he says, If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus's love to Caesar was no less than his. So if there's any in this assembly, if there's anyone assembled here in this crowd who's a dear friend of Caesar's, I say to him that Brutus's love, my love to Caesar, was no less than his. His being that person who loved Caesar, who's mentioned earlier. So I loved Caesar as much as anyone. And have you noticed how Brutus is talking about himself? Yeah, he's using the third person, which is exactly why Caesar got in trouble. So it's interesting to see him immediately pick that up. He doesn't say I here, whereas before he was saying me and my all over the place, he's talking about himself as Brutus. And then he's going to do it again. Watch. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. So if then that friend, that other person who loved Caesar, demand, demand to know why Brutus rose against Caesar, why he rebelled against him, well, here's my answer. It's not that I loved Caesar less. It's not that I didn't love Caesar. It's that I loved Rome more. He loved Rome more than he loved Caesar. And you can see that antithesis of less and more. So he sets up this imaginary person who loved Caesar, and he says, number one, I loved Caesar too, but number two, I loved Rome more than I loved Caesar. He's appealing to their patriotism over their idol worship of Caesar. And he's going to go on to use another antithesis. He says, Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? So had you rather, in other words, would you rather Caesar was living, still alive, but you die all as slaves? 
So would you rather that than that Caesar was dead, but you live as free men? So it's a really clear antithesis. Caesar lives, but you all live in slavery, or Caesar dies, but you all live free. It's very much a rhetorical question. Which would you rather, guys? And he goes on, as Caesar loved me, I weep for him. In other words, he weeps for his death, even though he was the one who caused it. So he's crying for the version of Caesar that loved him. He loved that guy. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. So when Caesar was fortunate, in other words, when he was doing really well, when fortune was smiling on him, well, Brutus rejoiced at that. As he was valiant, I honor him. Valiant as in brave. So I honored the version of him that was brave. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. I slew as in I killed him. So the ambitious guy, that Caesar, I had to kill him. And you can see that parallel construction in those four sentences. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. So I loved all the good parts of him, but the ambitious part, I had to kill that. And then he sort of sums it up. He says, there is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. So it's almost like he's dealing out cards. I'm going to give him tears for his love. I'm going to give him joy for his fortune. I'm going to give him honor for his valor, but I had to give him death for his ambition. It's just a summing up of those four sentences before. Now he's going to bring it on home with a big finish. It's really pretty fascinating to me how simple this is. I mean, I think he's trying to be kind of plain spoken. That's probably one of the reasons he chose prose. He's just trying to tell it like it is, good old Brutus. So he wraps it up with these ideas. He says, who is here so base that would be a bondman? Who is here, like who of all the people here is so base, is so low, that would be a bondman, that wants to be a slave? Is there anybody like that? And notice the alliteration of base and bondman. So does anybody here want to be a slave? If any, speak, for him have I offended. So if there's anyone matching that description, if there's anyone here who wants to be a slave, well, please tell me, I offended you. Everyone who wants to be slaves, I apologize. And here comes another parallel construction. Again, this is such formal, by-the-book rhetoric. He's going to say the same thing in a different way. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? Rude is like unrefined or uncivilized. So who here is so uncivilized that they don't want to be a Roman? If any, speak. For him have I offended. It's that same answer again. If there's anyone matching that description, anyone who doesn't want to be a Roman, speak out now. You're the guy I've offended. And he does it again. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? Who's so vile, who's so shameful or terrible that will not love his country, that doesn't want to love his own country? And I'll bet you can guess what the follow-up to that is. If any speak, for him have I offended. Anybody here who doesn't love their country? These are, by the way, literal rhetorical questions. When we use that phrase rhetorical question, a kind of question you don't actually want answered, but you're only using for rhetorical purposes, this here is it, used in the middle of formal rhetoric. Anybody here want to be a slave? Anybody here not want to be a Roman? Anybody here not want to love their country? Come on, he knows how you'd answer those. So if nobody answers, then everybody should be fine with Caesar's killing. There's also a little bit of an echo here in these three statements with the beginning of the speech. Remember he called them Romans, countrymen, and lovers? Well, there's Roman, there's country, maybe not the lovers part, but you see it's that same three-part structure. So he reads off these rhetorical questions, and then he says, I pause for a reply. Anybody want to answer me? And of course, the people in the crowd all say, none, Brutus, none. As in, there's no one who'll say that. There isn't like one guy in the crowd who's like, I don't love my country. So when they say none, he replies, as he probably expected to, then none have I offended. I mean, it's all so logical. It's all so perfectly reasoned. He thinks if he just reasons it out with them, he just lays it out as clearly as possible, they'll see the light. He says, I have done no more to Caesar than you shall do to Brutus. So basically, if I ever got as ambitious as Caesar was, you'd have the right to kill me. He goes on. He says, 
the question of his death is enrolled in the capital, his glory not extenuated wherein he was worthy, nor his offenses enforced for which he suffered death. So the question of his death means the reasons for his death. That's enrolled in the capital. Enrolled means recorded. So this is sort of like when a politician is giving a speech and they say, go to my website and you'll see all my plans. So apparently they've written all the justifications for Caesar's death. They've left it in the capital. Anyone can go read it if they want to. His glory not extenuated. Extenuated means like minimized, wherein he was worthy, in what ways he was worthy. So we haven't minimized the good things about him at all. We haven't minimized the glory about him, nor his offenses enforced. Enforced is like stressed or overemphasized, for which he suffered death. So in that same explanation, we haven't overemphasized the bad things he did, for which he suffered death, for which he underwent death, the offenses he was killed for. So basically, you can go actually read the reasons somewhere else. This is amazing to me. So what's fascinating to me about this speech is how little, in some ways, he talks about why they killed Caesar. I mean, he says that they killed Caesar so that the people wouldn't be slaves. He says that they killed Caesar because he was ambitious. But that's kind of it. For the rest of it, you have to go read something. It's a very formally correct speech, but it's also kind of bloodless and lazy. He kind of depends on the people to know a lot more than they may actually know. He sort of forgets the people's emotional connection with Caesar. He assumes they know as much as he does, and he assumes that they can work it through on their own. But again, he is an impressive speaker. It's just that he leaves a lot undone here. So just at that moment, in comes Mark Antony, presumably with that servant and maybe some more help, with the body of Julius Caesar. And this is actually pretty amazing timing on Antony's part. He's sort of interrupting Brutus's speech a little bit with this incredibly dramatic picture. And Brutus sees him and says, here comes his body, mourned by Mark Antony, who, though he had no hand in his death, shall receive the benefit of his dying, a place in the commonwealth, as which of you shall not. So here comes the body of Caesar, mourned by Mark Antony, who, though he had no hand in his death, literally like he had no role in the death of Caesar, nonetheless, he's still going to get the benefit of Caesar's death, which is a place in the commonwealth. A commonwealth is essentially a name for a free state that treats everyone equally. So because Caesar died, Antony and everybody else gets the benefit of living in freedom. As which of you shall not? So basically, everyone here gets that same shot. That's the whole point of a commonwealth. Everybody shares in it. And Brutus says, With this I depart, that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. So I depart with this one idea, that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome... So just as I slew my best lover, my dearest friend, for the good of Rome, in that same way, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. So I killed Caesar for my country, and I'd happily use the same dagger to kill myself for my country if that's what it needed. Again, a very formal rhetorical figure here at the end. I would die for my country just as Caesar had to die for his country. And his sort of honorable appeal is very compelling. The people listening cry out, Live, Brutus! Live! Live! don't die. You should survive. You should live on. And then someone else cries out, bring him with triumph home into his house. Triumph, remember that kind of triumphant procession that the Roman conquerors used to have through the streets? So they're saying bring Brutus home with a kind of victorious funeral procession. Apparently this speech has been pretty effective. And someone else has a suggestion, give him a statue with his ancestors. Oh my god, this must be music to Brutus's ears. His ancestors, especially that first ancestor, the one who founded the Roman Republic? And then someone else yells out something, which is truly shocking. Someone yells, let him be Caesar. This is pretty much when you know that Brutus has been underestimating this whole situation. Because they don't say, long live the Roman Republic, you did the right thing by killing Caesar. They say, let him be Caesar, let Brutus be Caesar. This assassination hasn't changed anything. They just want a different king now. 
the damage is already done. And another person in the crowd hears that and says, Caesar's better parts shall be crowned in Brutus. So Caesar's better parts, in this case, something like qualities, they'll be crowned in Brutus, as though Brutus has all of his good qualities with none of his bad qualities. And notice that verb crowned, as in crowned king. This plan is not working well at all. Although maybe Brutus would like to be king, the entire reason for the assassination was so that Rome wouldn't have a king. And then another person cries out, we'll bring him to his house with shouts and clamors. Clamors are loud noises. So again, going back to that idea that they'll carry him home in triumph. But Brutus calls out, my countrymen. And someone says, peace, silence. Brutus speaks. Peace means be quiet. He's speaking. And then someone else says, peace, ho. Like, be quiet over there. Hey. And in part to douse all this king talk, he says to them, good countrymen, let me depart alone. And for my sake, stay here with Antony. So let me depart alone. I'm going to go home alone. And for my sake, because of the respect you have for me, stay here with Antony. Do grace to Caesar's corpse and grace his speech tending to Caesar's glories which Mark Antony, by our permission, is allowed to make. Do grace to Caesar's corpse, as in respect or do gracious acts to Caesar's corpse. Give him a real funeral and grace his speech. Favor or honor Antony's speech. You see that echoing of do grace and grace his speech. It's a speech that's going to be tending to Caesar's glories. Tending means relating or referring to Caesar's glories. Remember, all that Brutus is allowing Antony to do is speak about how great Caesar was, not about them. So his speech is going to refer to Caesar's glories, which Mark Antony, by our permission, is allowed to make. They're talking about the speech here. He's officially giving his permission to Antony to speak. And he follows that up. I do entreat you, not a man depart, save I alone, till Antony have spoke. I entreat you, in other words, I ask you, or even I beg you, not a man depart, no one leave, save I alone, except for me alone, till Antony have spoke. So he's trying to make sure that no one takes him home. Nobody follows him home. He's not trying to be a king. He's not trying to be the next Caesar. But he's also leaving Antony alone with the crowd, which could be a real mistake. As we'll see, spoiler alert, it's a huge mistake. And off Brutus goes. And of course, the people agree with him. They say, stay, ho, and let us hear Mark Antony. So yeah, we'll stay. You over there, stay. Listen to Mark Antony. And then someone else yells out, let him go up onto the public chair. Public chair is like the pulpit or the speaker's platform that Brutus was just speaking from. And the assorted people in the crowd say, we'll hear him. Noble Antony, go up. There can occasionally be a bit of ad-libbing around here, too, just so it's not one person at a time screaming out of the crowd. And Antony replies, for Brutus's sake, I am beholding to you. This is sort of like our word beholden, like I'm obliged to you. For Brutus's sake. Remember Brutus said, for my sake, stay here with Antony. And he goes up to the speaking platform. And as he's going up, the people in the crowd are sort of talking to each other. One says, what does he say of Brutus? And another guy responds, he says, for Brutus's sake, he finds himself beholding to us all. They're just spreading his words around. Remember, he hasn't gotten up high enough that they can all hear him yet. And someone else hears that and says, to her best, he spoke no harm of Brutus here. He better not say anything mean about Brutus. And then they start to spin off a little bit. Another guy says, this Caesar was a tyrant. So they're sort of reflecting back on Brutus's speech and saying, yeah, I guess Caesar was a tyrant. We used to like him. The image you have here is of a very easily manipulated, very fickle crowd. You're going to see this a lot in Shakespeare's plays. In the later ones like Coriolanus, it almost gets kind of mean. They'll do whatever they're told. They're very easy to manipulate, but they can also be very flighty. They'll change who they like from minute to minute. I mean, the man's not wrong, but still. So as soon as this guy says that Caesar was a tyrant, another guy in the crowd says, nay, that's certain. We are blessed that Rome is rid of him. So clearly they're pretty much on Brutus's side here. Yeah, it's a good thing that they killed Caesar. And then Antony reaches the platform and one guy says to the other guys, peace, let us hear what Antony can say. In other words, be quiet. It's Antony's turn to talk. Let's hear what he has to say. 
and maybe people are still sort of talking in the crowd. And Antony sort of starts tentatively. He says, you gentle Romans. And gentle can mean noble. It can mean kind in our modern sense of the word. But he starts kind of small and not very decisively. And then people in the crowd start calling out to other people to be quiet. They say, peace, ho. Like, hey, be quiet. Let us hear him. So finally the crowd quiets down for certain. So there's a bit of a false start there with you gentle Romans. And then when he starts again, he's much more certain. And the other thing he's doing, which is amazing, is that he's speaking in verse. Remember Brutus went out of his way to speak in prose? Well, Antony snaps things back into verse. Because while it may make him sound like more upper class, it also is an incredibly powerful form of communication. And he starts with this very unfortunately famous line, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And you can't help but notice that this is sort of a rephrasing of Brutus's opening from a few minutes ago. Remember Brutus said Romans, countrymen, and lovers? Well, Antony, who's very canny, starts with the word friends. Notice he starts on a stressed syllable, which is unusual. Usually you start with the unstressed syllable, friends. He immediately makes them his friends. And then, of course, he also has Romans and countrymen. Lend me your ears. He's asking for something from them. He's literally saying, I need to borrow your hearing for a little while. It's with ultimate respect for them. He's putting them at the forefront. He goes on, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Remember, Brutus gave him permission to praise Caesar, but he says, I'm not even here to praise Caesar. I'm just here to bury him. I'm just burying my friend. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often tarried with their bones. So why isn't he praising Caesar? Because the evil that men do is what survives them. People are going to remember his bad qualities. The good is often turred. It's often buried along with their bones. It's another antithesis, by the way. Evil versus good, live after, interred with. There's something kind of plain spoken about this speech, but at the same time, it's just as full of rhetorical turns as Brutus's was. It just doesn't sound as full of them. And he says, so let it be with Caesar. Let's let it be that way with Caesar. I can't praise him because you remember the bad things he did. The good is going to be interred with his bones too. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. And there's that adjective noble again. Brutus's pet adjective. The one that's always associated with him. But here it could kind of be in quotation marks. There's going to be a lot of irony going on. So Brutus, who's so noble, told you that Caesar was ambitious. He did. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Grievous means like serious or severe. So if Caesar was ambitious, notice that if, well, if he was, well, then that's a grievous fault. That's terrible. It's a real sin. And Caesar has answered it. In other words, paid for it grievously. He suffered the worst punishment possible for it. But what he's actually doing in those lines is de-emphasizing what Caesar did. Fine, he was ambitious. Well, now he's paid for it. And he goes on. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. So here, under leave, in other words, by permission of Brutus and the rest, the other conspirators, come I, in other words, I come to speak in Caesar's funeral. And there's that parenthetical in the middle that is so important. For Brutus is an honorable man. This is going to become a refrain in this speech. I'm allowed to speak because Brutus is so honorable. So are they all. So are all those guys. They're all honorable men. He's going to take the word honorable and twist its meaning completely around. He was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. So notice how simple and to the point this is. Again, this is all such clear, formal rhetoric, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds emotional. He says, he was my friend. Caesar was my friend. He was always faithful to me. He was always just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. 
That's now the second time we've seen that. Remember the noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious? Well, now it's, but Brutus says he was ambitious. And, we've seen this before, Brutus is an honorable man. Remember, the entire basis of Brutus's funeral speech, right before this, was that Brutus is honorable, and you should trust him. He had good reasons for killing Caesar. So by subtly undermining this honor, he's undermining the whole idea behind Brutus's speech. He's also going to undermine this idea of ambition. Look what he says. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. So he brought many captives home from the wars, captive generals, presumably, whose ransoms, remember they were captured and then ransomed out to their people? Well, those ransoms did the general coffers, the public treasury. It filled them. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? I mean, it doesn't sound ambitious. This is, in some ways, a much less obvious rhetorical question. Because the obvious answer to this is no. Did ransoming prisoners to make you guys all money seem ambitious? I don't know. You tell me. When the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Well, this one maybe is a little bit of a stretch. When the poor people were crying, Caesar cried. Now, this is something that only Antony could have known and probably isn't a real thing. But he's talking to the poor people and he's talking about Caesar and what a great guy he was. Again, whereas so much of Brutus's speech was me, 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 I, 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 this is all about Caesar was great. He was great to you guys. You guys are great. You're smart. So Caesar cried for the poor. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Sterner is like rougher or crueler or harsher. Like if that's ambition, why is it crying? You also get that cool alliteration of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. There's that refrain again. The structure of this is so clear. It's like rhetoric 101, but it's working. And most importantly, it's working emotionally. And he has another example. He says, You all did see that on the looper call, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. He's talking directly to them. He's using their own experience. You all, all of you guys, did see that on the looper call, on that Lupercalia holiday, the holiday that began the play, I thrice presented him a kingly crown. Three times I presented him a crown. This is what happened offstage during that second scene of the play. Remember those cheers? So all you guys in the crowd saw when I presented him a crown three times, which he did thrice, three times he refused it. Was this ambition? Another rhetorical question. What's so ambitious about turning down a crown? I mean, if he accepted it, that's ambitious, sure. But turning it down? I don't know, that doesn't sound ambitious to me. And here's the refrain again. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And sure, he is an honorable man. Sure here means surely. He's varying it just a little bit so it doesn't sound too cooked. And what he's doing here is really undermining Brutus because he's saying a bunch of things that prove that Caesar wasn't ambitious. And if Brutus is such an honorable man, why isn't he telling the truth about Caesar? Maybe he wasn't ambitious. Maybe Brutus isn't really all that honorable. And this is a stroke of genius. Antony says, I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. I'm not trying to disprove what Brutus spoke. Oh, really? He's just laid out a bunch of things that disprove what Brutus spoke. But he says, all I'm doing here is speaking what I know. And you can see the monosyllables in this line. But here I am to speak what I do know. I'm just simple country folk. I'm not trying to say anything about Brutus. I'm just saying what I know. And then he turns on the crowd a little bit. He says, you all did love him once, not without cause. He's reminding them that they used to love Caesar. Remember where they started this speech? They were saying Caesar was a tyrant. Well, now he's saying, well, you guys used to love him. And not without cause, not without a reason. He's just laid out a bunch of reasons they used to love him. He did all these great things for them. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? So not without cause. Well, then what cause withholds you? Withholds means like prevents or restrains. What keeps you from mourning for him? O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. O judgment, as in like, O good judgment. 
he's talking to judgment itself, you're fled to brutish beasts. Brutish means like uncivilized or cruel. So maybe the ones with judgment now are the animals because men have lost their reason. Humans don't have reason anymore. Maybe the animals have it. If they can't mourn for the guy they used to love, what's the point? You also hear those hard B sounds of brutish beasts. So it seems like he's getting pretty emotionally worked up by the fact that Caesar was good to the people and they've basically abandoned him in death. He gets so worked up, maybe there are tears in his eyes and he turns to the people and says, bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar and I must pause till it come back to me. Bear with me as though he's apologizing for his emotion, for his outburst at them. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. He's not talking about logic here the way Brutus did. He's talking about heart, literally. I'm too emotionally attached to Caesar. I have to pause until my heart returns to me from Caesar's coffin. He's overwhelmed with emotion. And this is Antony's advantage over Brutus. Antony knows what all smart politicians know, which is that people don't pay attention to facts. They don't pay attention to logic. They pay attention to emotion. That's what moves people in politics. If you are a politician or someone politics adjacent listening to this podcast, listen to me now. Emotion works. Antony's a smart dude. He may not have been present for Brutus's speech, but clearly Shakespeare is contrasting the two of their approaches. Brutus thinks it's enough to be right. Antony knows that you have to move people. So even when he's giving reasoned answers, like Caesar did A, B, and C for you, there's still emotional appeals. Caesar loved you. Caesar did these things because he loved you. You treated him badly. I'm moved by it. You should be too. And after Antony seems to be overcome with emotion, a change starts to sweep through the crowd. One guy says, Methinks there is much reason in his sayings. Methinks isn't just I think. It means it seems to me, or kind of seems like, there's much reason in his sayings, in what he says. And it's fascinating because Antony's path to reason is through emotion. If you make these emotional appeals, it sounds like reason to them. And another guy in the crowd echoes it. He says, If thou consider rightly of the matter, Caesar has had great wrong. So if you consider rightly, if you sort of think correctly about this matter, Caesar's the one who's had great wrong, who's been wronged. He's totally turned their opinion around 180 degrees. You can also see a little bit of fun wordplay in that phrase. He's put two opposites right into the middle of it. You see rightly and wronged. Well, right and wrong are opposites. And then there's one sort of dissenting voice in the crowd. Someone else says, has he masters? Masters are like guys or fellas. Like, really? Has he had great wrong? I fear there will a worse come in his place. Who's this guy? He knows what he's talking about. He says, I fear there will a worse. In other words, someone worse than Caesar will come in his place. That we're just going to replace someone bad with someone worse. This is a smart guy. I want him on the team. But then another person disagrees with him. He says, marked you his words. Marked means like, did you pay attention to what he said? Him here being Antony. He would not take the crown. Which here means Caesar would not take the crown. Like, weren't you listening? He said Caesar didn't take the crown. Therefore, tis certain he was not ambitious. It's brilliant. Antony set up a really, really simple jump. Caesar didn't take the crown. He must not have been ambitious. Anyone can follow this. It doesn't have the convoluted logic that Brutus's speech did. It's simple. No crown, not ambitious. Someone else says, if it be found so, some will dear abide it. If it be found so, in other words, if it's found to be true that Caesar wasn't ambitious, some will dear abide it. Dear abide means pay dearly or like suffer the consequences terribly. And he's already made the other jump, which is we should blame the guys who killed him. Because if it's true that Caesar wasn't ambitious, well, then this is treason, not some glorious logical purging. And then someone else pipes up. They say, poor soul, his eyes are red as fire with weeping. This emotional appeal is really starting to kick in. Poor soul, poor Antony. 
His eyes are as red as fire with weeping. He must really be crying. And someone else notices that and says, there's not a nobler man in Rome than Antony. So not only does this throw down the other conspirators, but it elevates Antony. And this is so interesting to me. What word did they choose? Noble. The whole point was that the noblest man in Rome was Brutus. But now the noblest man in Rome is Antony. That was quick. And Antony's slowly been recovering from his attack of emotion. And someone in the crowd says, now mark him. Mark means pay attention to or listen to. He begins again to speak. It's like a stage direction for the actor playing Antony. And notice again, Shakespeare does that thing where he pushes the verb to the end of the thought. Not he begins to speak again. He begins again to speak. And this is a really, really important thing about this speech. Whereas Brutus's speech in some ways could have been delivered to an empty room. I mean, he had that one rhetorical question, which they answered, but he could have done without answering. No, Antony's is really a dialogue. He lets the audience fill in the gaps in his own speech. He doesn't have to say as much. If anything, he's saying very little, and he's letting the crowd fill in the gaps for themselves. Antony starts up again. He says, But yesterday the word of Caesar might have stood against the world. But yesterday, only yesterday, the word of Caesar, Caesar's word, might have stood against the world. That's how powerful he was. People would have taken his word over anything else in the world. Now lies he there, and none so poor to do him reverence. So he used to be the most important person in the world, but now he lies there in the coffin, and none so poor. In other words, no one is low enough to do him reverence, to pay respect to him, to do homage to him. Basically, everyone treats him like dirt now. Again, an emotional appeal. A great person has fallen, and everyone's treating him like crap. Why is that? Well, fill in the blanks, audience. And then Antony starts to talk about what he won't do which is a great tactic. He says, Oh, masters, if I were disposed to stir your hearts and minds to mutiny and rage, I should do Brutus wrong and Cassius wrong, who, you all know, are honorable men. He's bringing that same refrain back again. He says, Oh, masters. And this was the same word they used before. It's almost like a fellow citizen kind of word. It's very familiar. You're my masters. If I were disposed, if I were inclined, if I were of a mind to stir your hearts and minds, like stir up, move, or inspire, and what is he moving them to do? To mutiny and rage. Mutiny like rebellion or riot, and rage, anger. So if I were in the mood to do that, well, that would be wronging Brutus and Cassius. And he's calling them out by name. He says, I'm not going to do that, because as you know, they're honorable men. And again, honorable is becoming incredibly ironic the more he mentions that. He's saying... Here's dishonorable deed after dishonorable deed, but no, these guys are totally honorable. Antony realizes something about honor that these other guys just don't. Brutus treats it like a real thing, like it exists. And Antony realizes it's just a quality. It only has as much meaning as we put onto it, which means you can undermine it pretty easily. You know that famous speech that Falstaff has in Henry IV, Part One, written a few years before this play, about how useless honor is when you're on a battlefield and you have a broken arm? It's not a real thing. It's made out of air. So Antony's great insight is that if it's made out of air, you can do whatever you want with it. It can go, it can come, it can attach to one person, it can attach to another person. Here, he's stripping all meaning from it. Well, they're honorable men, I guess so. He's saying, I don't want to do those guys wrong. He says, I will not do them wrong. I rather choose to wrong the dead, to wrong myself and you, than I will wrong such honorable men. I rather, instead, I would sooner choose to wrong the dead, in other words, Caesar. So instead of wronging these honorable guys, I'll wrong myself and you, I'll wrong Caesar, the dead guy, but not those honorable guys. Oh no, they're too honorable to wrong. Stirring you up to mutiny and rage would be terrible. I definitely don't want to do that. And the crowd is really starting to get restless at this. The seed has been planted. One thing to watch about the language of this speech now, when he's really emotionally worked up, is you have more enjambment, more spilling over from one verse line to the next without a break. The word of Caesar might have stood against the world. 
if I were disposed to stir your hearts and minds. I rather choose to wrong the dead. He's clearly worked up emotionally, so that emotion is spilling over from line to line. And then Antony makes a turn that almost comes out of nowhere. He says, but here's a parchment with the seal of Caesar, as though he just found it lying around. So just at the moment when they're the most emotionally stirred up and ready to riot, he finds this document with Caesar's seal on it. Interesting. Okay. So tell us more about this parchment with Caesar's seal on it. He says, I found it in his closet. Okay. More interesting. A closet is like a private room. Oh, he went into Caesar's room and found it. Sure, that's a thing that always happens. When would he have done this, by the way? He just came from Caesar's murder. It could be a blank piece of paper for all I care. So notice how he's ratcheting up the mystery. Here's a parchment. Interesting. I found it in his closet. Oh, more interesting. What is it? Tis his will. Oh, now that's interesting. And notice those brief little declarative statements. He breaks up the line. I found it in his closet. Tis his will. Simple, simple speech. It doesn't sound anywhere near as formal as the rhetoric that Brutus was using. Okay, Caesar's will. So we've gone from emotion to mystery. And they want to hear what's in it, but he makes the mystery even deeper. He says, Let but the commons hear this testament, which, pardon me, I do not mean to read, and they would go and kiss dead Caesar's wounds, and dip their napkins in his sacred blood, yea, beg a hair of him for memory, and dying, mention it within their wills, bequeathing it as a rich legacy unto their issue. Let but the commons. Let but here means something like, if only. If only they were to. And who's the they? The commons, the common people, the general public. If they were to hear this testament, in other words, the will which testifies to his final wishes. And then there's that parenthetical, which, pardon me, I do not mean to read. Mean here means intend. He's like, well, I have this will, but I don't don't intend to read it. I probably won't read it. But if I did, the common people would go and kiss dead Caesar's wounds. That's intense. It's almost another example of comparing the wounds to lips like they did earlier. So they would kiss his wounds, and what else would they do? They would dip their napkins in his sacred blood. Napkins like handkerchiefs. Remember that image from earlier in the play of Caesar's blood like the relics of a holy saint? Well, it's that same image here. They would love him so much, if they heard his will, that they would dip their napkins in his blood. Not just his blood, his sacred blood, his holy blood. He's making Caesar a saint post-mortem. He's even almost making him a god. And yay, not only that, they would beg a hair of him. They would ask for a hair from him for memory, to remember him by, and dying, mention it within their wills. So when the people who have a hair of Caesar die, they're going to put it in their wills. That's how much they value it. That's a neat stair step from his will to their wills. They'll be bequeathing it, in other words, passing it down or leaving it as an inheritance, like a rich legacy. A legacy is a legal term for any item left in a will, unto their issue. Their issue are like their descendants, their children. So a single hair of Caesar would be so valuable that they would actually leave it to their children as a memento. But that's only if they hear what's in Caesar's will. But boy, if they did. And notice how Antony ends this speech. He ends with half a line. There's silence built into the end. Unto their issue, dot, dot, dot. So he just leaves that hanging out there. Boy, if the people could hear this will, oof, they would love him even more. Everybody kind of looks around at each other like, of course. And somebody finally yells out, we'll hear the will. Read it, Mark Antony. And then soon everybody else joins in. The will. The will. We will hear Caesar's will. I love that little pun in there. We will hear Caesar's will. There's a pretty cool rhythm to that line as a whole. The will. The will. We will hear Caesar's will. There's only 10 syllables in a verse line, and four of them in this case are the same word, will. It becomes a refrain, a chant. He's managed to get them to want to see this will more than anything else in the world. Because as usual, this works with children all the way up. People want the thing most that they cannot have. And Antony digs in even farther. He says, have patience, gentle friends. I must not read it. Gentle here again, meaning something like noble. He says, I can't read it. 
Can't do it. Why not? It is not meet. You know how Caesar loved you. It's not meet. It's not appropriate that you know how Caesar loved you, how much he loved you. That's nonsense, of course, but it's another way to make them want it even more. This is total psychological warfare on his part. He's twisting them tighter and tighter. Now the question is, why isn't it appropriate for them to know how much? Why can't he show it to them? He says, you are not wood. You are not stones, but men. There's kind of a cool echo in here of the beginning of the play. Because remember how Flavius and Marullus, the tribunes, refer to the people as you blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things? Well, now Antony is going in the exact opposite direction because he's not stupid. He says, you're not wood, you're not stones, you're men. And as men, you have emotions. And being men, hearing the will of Caesar, it will inflame you. It will make you mad. So because you have emotion, when you hear the will of Caesar, and not just the literal will, like the last testament, it can also mean what he wanted. If you hear what Caesar wanted, it will inflame you. It'll light you on fire. It will make you mad. Mad as in crazy, not angry in our modern sense. You'll get crazed. You'll want revenge. But of course, by saying this, he's inflaming them. He's making them mad in anticipation. And then Antony just puts out a little bit of a tidbit for them, almost by accident. He says, "'Tis good you know not that you are his heirs, for if you should, oh, what would come of it?' It's a good thing that you don't know that you're his heirs, like he left things to you, the people. Though, of course, they know it now. It's like, oops, I can't believe I told that. But this is exactly the information he wants out there. For if you should, if you did know that you were his heirs, what would come of it? What would happen next? You'd probably go mad. And at this, the people really do kind of lose their minds. They yell out, read the will. We'll hear it, Antony. We want to hear this. Read it to us. You shall read us the will, Caesar's will. They're salivating at this. They have to hear it. And Antony's kind of playing hard to get here. He says, will you be patient? Will you stay a while? Stay here means something like wait. Like, can you wait a second? I have or shot myself to tell you of it. Or shot here means missed my aim or kind of done more than I intended. Literally, it's a term from archery where you shoot over a target. You just totally miss. I was very off target in telling you about this will. I should never have done it. I don't know what I was thinking. I fear I wrong the honorable men whose daggers have stabbed Caesar. This is kind of my favorite line in the whole speech. I fear, in other words, I worry that I'm wronging, I'm harming or speaking ill of or poorly affecting the honorable men whose daggers have stabbed Caesar. It's a total oxymoron, which he recognizes. And here Shakespeare uses the verse line kind of masterfully. The first line ends with honorable men. Yes, they're honorable men. But as soon as you go to the next line, whose daggers have stabbed Caesar? So one line undercuts the one before it. Now the word honorable is essentially meaningless. And he ends with, I do fear it. I really am worried. And by now, the people are just bonkers. They can't take it anymore. And they say exactly what Antony wants them to say. Some guy yells out, They were traitors. Honorable men? Notice Antony never once says the word traitors, but it's as though the whole speech is designed to get them to say it. He's trying to pull a speech out of them that he could never give himself. He can't come out in the marketplace and say, Brutus and Cassius and the rest are all traitors, you should go kill them. But he gets the audience listening to him to give that speech for him. So he says, they're honorable men. And some guy in the crowd yells out, no, they're not. Honorable men? They were traitors. And they haven't forgotten about the will. Someone else cries out, the will, the testament. And then someone else says, they were villains, murderers. So not just traitors, but they're villains and murderers. And then someone else says, the will, read the will. So now you have these two competing ideas in the audience that Antony would never be able to say out loud. Number one, the conspirators were villains. Number two, they want to hear Caesar's will. And finally, Antony very graciously gives in. He says, you will compel me then to read the will? You're going to force me to read it? Well, okay, I guess I'll have to. They've played directly into his hands. 
and notice how he's going to do it. And this is something we sort of forget about this. This isn't just a guy speaking from above down to a crowd. He's going to start erasing the formal lines between high class speaker and low class audience. He says, then make a ring about the corpse of Caesar and let me show you him that made the will. Make a ring about, in other words, make a ring around the corpse of Caesar, which is still down on the ground there. And let me show you him, the person that made the will. I'm going to show you Caesar, the person who wrote this will. Shall I descend? Shall I come down from the platform? And will you give me leave? Will you give me permission? One of the most important people in Rome is asking for permission from the people, from the common people. Again, an emotional appeal. And they're all too happy to give him the permission. In fact, they're glad that he asked. Come down, they yell. Descend. You shall have leave. We permit you. We give you our permission. This feels great for them. They have the power now. And as Antony's coming down, the people start giving instructions to each other. One says, a ring, stand around. They're making that ring around Caesar's corpse that Antony asked them to. Stand from the hearse. From here means like away from. And hearse, not in our modern sense of the vehicle, it's what they would refer to as a bier, B-I-E-R, the sort of stand that the corpse is lying on. So they're making a circle around him, but they're saying, stand a little way away from it. Give him room. Stand from the body. Stand away from the body. And then someone else cries out, room for Antony, most noble Antony. There's that word noble again. It's jumped off of Brutus and attached itself to Antony. And notice what they're crying out. They're crying room for Antony, as in make room for Antony. But as we remember, there's a little bit of a pun there, which is that room used to be pronounced Rome. It's almost like they're yelling Rome for Antony. And now Antony has reached them and he says, nay, press not so upon me. Stand far off. Not literally far off, but just farther off. Don't squash me like that. Give me room. And the people are all too glad to comply. They say, stand back. Room. Bear back. Room again. Make room. And then bear back. Bear as in move back. So they're giving him room around Caesar's corpse, almost like they're creating another kind of speaking platform for him. It's like a stage now. And Antony knows that Caesar is the best prop he ever could have in this play. And he goes straight to emotion, not reason. He says, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now. So if you have any tears in you, get ready to cry them now. And notice what he's going to do is he's going to start telling stories in the simplest terms possible. You all do know this mantle. Mantle's like a cloak. It's what Caesar's wearing. So you all know it. You recognize this. And he starts to reminisce. He says, I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. T'was on a summer's evening in his tent. That day he overcame the Nervii. Overcame here means like defeated or conquered the Nervii. They were these ancient Belgian tribes that Caesar defeated in battle way back in 57. And this is probably one of the most difficult victories that Caesar ever had. It's one of his most famous victories, a kind of victory from the jaws of defeat kind of thing. And when the people hear that, they all know that name. They remember the great conquests that Caesar made for them. So just as he reminds the people how great Caesar was, he immediately turns and says, look, in this place ran Cassius's dagger through. So he's literally showing them the holes in the cloak where Caesar was stabbed. This is where Cassius, specifically, his dagger went through. Now, of course, Antony can't know specifically, but he's making it personal. It's not just the conspirators. He's going to name them one by one. See what a rent the envious Casca made. Rent is like a gash or a tear. And envious, not in our modern sense of jealous, but like spiteful or malicious. So see this hole that Casca made. So he has kind of a bad adjective for Casca, but look what he does with the next guy. Through this... The well-beloved Brutus stabbed, and as he plucked his cursed steel away, mark how the blood of Caesar followed it, as rushing out of doors to be resolved if Brutus so unkindly knocked or no. So whereas Casca is envious, Brutus is well-beloved. It's almost more treacherous, because he was so beloved by Caesar. So through this hole, the beloved Brutus stabbed. You get a little bit of alliteration with beloved and Brutus. 
And he goes on. This is a real description because ultimately Brutus is his target. As he plucked his cursed steel away. Plucked here means like pulled out or withdrew. And steel means his knife, his dagger. And notice whereas Brutus is well beloved, the dagger is cursed. He's attaching that adjective to Brutus through his knife. So as he pulled out the dagger after stabbing Caesar, Mark, notice how the blood of Caesar followed it. So presumably there's blood spread around this hole. So the blood followed the dagger out of the wound, as rushing out of doors. As here means like, as if it were, rushing out of doors to be resolved, to find out for sure if Brutus so unkindly knocked or no. So it's like if you heard a knock on the door, and then when you opened it, there was no one there, so you ran outside to see who it was. Well, in this case, it was the blood. It was as though the blood rushed out to find out if it was Brutus that was the one who knocked. In other words, stabbed. And notice the adverb that's attached to this, unkindly. This can mean cruel, but it can also mean unnaturally, as in not of humankind. So slowly, words like cursed and unkind are being attached to Brutus's name, though never to the person himself. And why was it so unkind? For Brutus, as you know, was Caesar's angel. An angel here in the sense of the person he loved most, that he had the most unreserved love for. That's why it was so shocking. Judge, O you gods, how dearly Caesar loved him. He's literally asking the gods to judge, which is a pretty powerful verb. How dearly Caesar loved him. Caesar's love for Brutus was pure and true. This was the most unkindest cut of all, for when the noble Caesar saw him stab, ingratitude, more strong than traitor's arms, quite vanquished him. And he brings that word unkind back immediately. So it goes from unkindly to unkindest. So this was the unkindest, the worst cut of all. Out of all the times he was stabbed by all the traitors, this stabbing was the worst. Why? For when the noble Caesar saw him stab, then ingratitude, which is more strong than traitor's arms, quite vanquished him. Quite vanquished means completely defeated. Vanquished is usually a term you use in battle. So he's saying it wasn't just the traitor's arms. It wasn't just the stabbings. It was Brutus's ingratitude that defeated him. It was that feeling of betrayal. Ingratitude for all the things that Caesar did for Brutus. Then burst his mighty heart, and in his mantle muffling up his face, even at the base of Pompey's statue, which all the while ran blood, great Caesar fell. So in that moment of betrayal, his mighty heart burst. And notice that now Caesar is noble and mighty. He's sort of recreating his image. And in his mantle muffling up his face, mantle again being like that cloak, what did he do? He muffled up his face. He covered or wrapped up his face. Notice that alliteration of mantle and muffling. Even at the base of Pompey's statue, even on the pedestal of Pompey's statue. The irony here being, of course, that Caesar had defeated Pompey a few years before. So that's where great Caesar fell. There's another adjective, great. And notice this cool detail. Pompey's statue all the while ran blood. All the while as in the whole time it was happening. During this attack, Pompey's statue ran with blood. It's just like Calpurnia's dream from before, where Caesar's statue was spouting blood. Well, now Pompey's statue is doing that. Now, mind you, Antony wasn't there at the time. He ran away to his house. He doesn't know any of these details. He may be making them up as he goes along. But the image he's making is of a great person betrayed by the person he loved most. And that's a really strong emotional connection. And he ends that line with the strong verb fell. You can almost hear it. Great Caesar fell. You hear the impact. And he's going to use that word several times in the next few lines. Oh, what a fall was there, my countrymen. So it's not just great Caesar that fell. Then I and you and all of us fell down whilst bloody treason flourished over us. So it's all these different kinds of falls. There's the literal fall, there's death, there's falls from grace, and there's these kind of metaphorical falls. I and you and all of us fell down. It's another powerful monosyllabic line. 
We fell alongside Caesar. We lost something with Caesar, all of us, whilst bloody treason flourished over us. Flourished is a very specific term here. It means waving your sword in triumph over an enemy that you defeated on the battlefield. And who's the enemy? It's bloody treason, or in this case, treasonous people. And notice how he's transferred it. This is no longer just a crime done to Caesar. This is a crime done to all of us. We fell down. Treason flourished over us. And he looks around at them, and they feel it. He says, Oh, now you weep. And I perceive you feel the dint of pity. Now you're all crying. I perceive, I see, I sense that you feel the dint of pity. Dint is literally like a mark or an impression that you leave in something. It's as though that feeling of pity has made a dent in you. The origin of this word dint, by the way, is an old English word that means a blow received in battle, as though you've been wounded by that feeling. And he says, these are gracious drops. Gracious means like benevolent or kind or even blessed. Drops here meaning like tears, teardrops. Notice again how simple this language is. These are gracious drops. Again, the appeal is always to emotion over reason. And he's going to escalate this now. He says, kind souls, what, weep you when you but behold our Caesar's vesture wounded? So you kind souls. He's flattering them for the feelings that he himself has generated in them. What, are you weeping when you but behold? When you only behold or when you just behold our Caesar's vesture wounded? Vesture means clothing or garment. So you're just crying when you see the holes in Caesar's cloak? Wait until you see what comes next. He says, look you here. Here is himself marred as you see with traitors. So he pulls the cloak off. So now they're not just going to see the vesture. They're going to see Caesar himself, his body marred as you see marred means like damaged or ruined as you see with traitors in other words by traitors and now he uses that word they've already used it so he's allowed to use it and they can see caesar's body covered in stab wounds he's not pulling any punches here do you thought it was bad to see the clothes now look at the guy and the people lose it one person says oh piteous spectacle piteous as in invoking the feeling of pity someone else says oh noble caesar another person says oh woeful day sorrowful day and then they start turning not only are they sad but now someone says oh traitors villains and another person picks up on that he says oh most bloody sight and another person turns that from feeling into action he says we will be revenged so you see that cascade of o's oh piteous spectacle oh noble caesar oh woeful day oh traitors villains oh most bloody sight and finally from those sounds of lament we get action and that feeling of revenge starts to spread around the crowd Someone says, revenge. Another person yells out, about, which is a one-word way of saying, like, look around. Let's go search around. Someone else says, seek. Another person says, burn. Another person says, fire. And someone else says, kill. And another person says, slay. It's a cascade of those one-word verbs. Let's go do this. Let's destroy. Let's burn. Let's fire. Let's kill. Let's slay. Antony has turned them into a mob. And someone else yells out, let not a traitor live. We're going to kill all of them. But Antony isn't quite ready to let them go yet. He says, stay countrymen. Wait, everyone. The crowd is out for blood and he manages to calm them down for a second. He really has them in the palm of their hand. Remember, in a way, he's still giving a speech, but they feel so involved in it that now they're doing all the speaking. And as soon as he gives an order, they go along with it. He says, stay. He says, wait. And someone says, peace there. Peace meaning be quiet. You over there, be quiet. Hear the noble Antony. And the people all yell out, we'll hear him. We'll follow him. We'll die with him. Wow, that's quite an escalation. We'll hear him. Sure, we'll listen to him. We'll follow him. We'll do what he wants. We'll die with him. If he needs us to die, we'll do that. Think how far he's come in just a few pages of dialogue here. They were willing to die for him? And Antony seems almost like he's trying to stop them. 
he says, good friends, sweet friends, let me not stir you up to such a sudden flood of mutiny. And notice he calls them friends again. It's the same way he called them right at the beginning of his speech. And not just good friends, but sweet friends. He says, let me not stir you up. Stir as in like rile you up or inspire you to such a sudden flood of mutiny. Mutiny being like rioting or rebelling. This is a very similar phrase to what he used earlier about let me not stir you up to mutiny and rage. He's using it again. He's like, I don't want this. And notice the word he uses, a flood of mutiny. That's almost the perfect expression for it. Because what he has here is a giant wave of people who could mutiny at any time. He's saying, I don't want to do this, even though of course he does. They that have done this deed are honorable. And he brings that back again. He's saying the conspirators, they're honorable. If anything, this is even making it worse for the crowd. What private griefs they have, alas, I know not, that made them do it. So what private griefs? Private griefs means like personal grievances against Caesar in this case. So since he's destroyed their sort of public reasons for it, since it had nothing to do with Caesar's ambition, he's implying that they have personal grievances. So alas, I don't know what personal grievances they had that made them do it. They are wise and honorable and will no doubt with reasons answer you. Answer here not just like answer the question, but like satisfy your curiosity or provide you with reasons. I don't know what those reasons are personally, but I'm sure these wise and honorable guys have reasons. And then watch what he does. I come not, friends, to steal away your hearts. He's bolstering his own credentials by undercutting himself. He's saying, I'm not here to steal your hearts. I'm not trying to fool you. I'm not trying to win you over to my side. I am no orator as Brutus is, but as you know me all, a plain blunt man that loved my friend and that they know full well that gave me public leave to speak of him. This is brilliant. I am no orator as Brutus is. It's a genius undercutting of Brutus. Brutus is an orator. He's a politician. He knows all the fancy words. He knows all the rules of rhetoric. Whereas I, I'm just a plain blunt man. This is a political tactic as old as time. I'm a simple guy. The other guy's a politician. And notice what he does with monosyllables here. But as you know me all, a plain blunt man. You get those three stressed syllables at the end. Plain blunt man. And what kind of man? The kind of man that loves my friend. I just love my good friend Caesar. Nothing else. And that they know full well. That here refers to the fact that I'm a plain blunt man that loves my friend. So they, the people that gave me public leave, that gave me public permission to speak about Caesar, they know that full well. They know that very well. So he's simultaneously blaming them and making himself innocent. I'm not trying to get one over on you. Remember, they let me speak to you. I'm just speaking about this guy I loved. For I have neither wit, nor words, nor worth, action, nor utterance, nor the power of speech to stir men's blood. I don't have wit, in other words, intelligence. I don't have words. I don't have worth. Worth as in like reputation, like a social worth. And notice the extreme alliteration here. Wit, words, worth. I've got none of those things. I don't have action, which here means something like special gestures that you'd use in speaking, nor utterance. Utterance as in practiced delivery. Nor the power of speech to stir men's blood. Blood here doesn't mean literal blood, although in this play it's a pretty charged word. It means like strong emotions or passion. So stirring men's blood means getting men excited. So he's talking about all the artificial things in public speaking, and he's saying, I don't have any of those things. Although, of course, we've been watching him for like 15 minutes now completely disprove that. He's just better at it than the other guys are. I only speak right on. I love this line. Right on here means like directly or artlessly or without any sort of high rhetorical flourishes. The modern equivalent, by the way, of this line is he tells it like it is. What he's saying is, I don't know any of the tricks that these fancy talkers do. It's sort of like a magician saying nothing up my sleeves. He says, I tell you that which you yourselves do know. Show you sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, poor dumb mouths, 
and bid them speak for me. So I'm just telling you what you already know. I'm showing you his wounds, and I love the sound of sweet Caesar. And look how he describes them again. Poor, poor, dumb mouths. Dumb as in speechless. It's an image he's used many times before. And bid them, and I ask them to speak for me. I tell you what you know, and I let what was done to Caesar speak on my behalf. So I don't know how to talk. I just put it out there. And look how he concludes. But were I Brutus? And Brutus Antony? There were an Antony would ruffle up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise in mutiny. So were I Brutus, if I were Brutus, and Brutus was Antony and Brutus was me, so if we switched places, well, now that would be an Antony that would ruffle up your spirits. Ruffle up meaning like stir up or rouse up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar. Not literally, of course, that's gross, but it's that idea of wounds as mouths again. Tongue is what you need to speak. So since Caesar's wounds are speaking for me, if I knew how to speak as well as Brutus, then every one of these wounds would have a tongue in it and would be able to speak. It would move, in other words, inspire, even the stones of Rome to rise in mutiny, to rebel or riot. So if I could speak like Brutus, well, then even the stones of Rome would be moved by what I said and what the wound said. There's that word stones again. Earlier on when he said, you are not wood, you are not stones. Well, now he's saying even the stones would be moved. And notice that his speech ends at the word mutiny and it turns into a prompt for the audience. Someone yells out, we'll mutiny. Like we don't need the stones to do it. We'll riot. And they're so worked up that someone else says, we'll burn the house of Brutus. So like 10 or 15 minutes ago, they were going to carry Brutus home to his house in triumph. And now they're talking about burning it to the ground. And someone else agrees. They say, away then, let's go. Come, seek the conspirators. Let's go find those guys, drag them out of their houses. And Antony stops them again. You sort of wonder, why doesn't he just let this wave crash over Brutus? He says, yet hear me, countrymen. Yet hear me speak. Yet hear means still or for just a little longer. Listen, guys, don't attack them yet. And the people in the crowd listen. Somebody calls out, peace, ho, like be quiet over there. Hear Antony, most noble Antony. See again, he's noble Antony, whereas before it was noble Brutus. He's got this sewed up. And Antony says, why, friends, you go to do you know not what. Notice he calls them friends again. Notice also the texture of this language. We have the monosyllables again. Why, friends, you go to do you know not what. They're incredibly worked up, and he's slowing them down with these simple, one-syllable words. You're going off to do something, but you don't know what it is. Wherein hath Caesar thus deserved your loves? Wherein means in what way, or how, or for what? What has he done to deserve your loves that you're going to go off in revenge for him? Alas, you know not. Alas, like, what a shame. And then he has a rejoinder to his own phrase. He says, I must tell you then. He's done this a few times now, these very simple statements in half lines. Alas, you know not. You don't know. Well, I must tell you then. I must tell you why he deserved your loves. Before you go and riot, let me tell you why you should riot. And then he springs this incredible clincher on them. He says, you have forgot the will I told you of. This is so amazing. It kind of slipped their mind. They were making a big stink about it earlier. And finally, 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 after all this tantalizing and teasing, he's ready to read them the will. And the people say, most true, the will. Let's stay and hear the will. Let's not rush off. We actually want to hear this will. This was hyped up to us. Let's hear it now. And Antony finally reads it. He says, here is the will and under Caesar's seal. Caesar's seal, it's his wax seal. So we know that it's authentic, that it was sealed by him personally. Or is it? I mean, you think Antony couldn't have gotten his hands on Caesar's seal for a few seconds? Or he couldn't have picked some other random document and read it out, claiming it was the will? But this is another sign of authenticity on his part. It must be the real will. It has his seal. And he reads it. 
to every Roman citizen he gives, to every several man, 75 drachmas. And notice the rhythm of this. To every Roman citizen he gives, but he doesn't say he gives 75 drachmas. He says he gives, and then he sort of pulls back on it. To every several man. Several means individual. So he gives every Roman citizen, every single one, 75 drachmas. And he holds that for the very end, for the full impact. Drachmas are a Greek silver coin, which was supposedly about a day's pay for a common person. One of them was. And you think, drachmas, well, what does that have to do with Rome? This is a Greek coin. Well, Plutarch, who wrote the original, was Greek. And so for him, the 75 drachmas is the equivalent of about 300 sesterces, which would have been from the original will, which is the Roman currency. But anyway, if you think that one drachma is about a day's pay for a regular person, that's 75 days' pay. That's like two and a half months of salary for everybody, every citizen. That is serious money. And the people who are listening kind of lose their minds at this. One person yells out, most noble Caesar. There's that word noble again. And they jump directly from saying what a great guy Caesar was, which is something that Antony has now long established, but really clinched in this moment with the money. And they make the jump to the next idea, which is where they started out. We'll revenge his death. And someone else yells out, oh, royal Caesar. Royal, whoa, whoa. Now there is some sense of royal meaning generous. Like he was so generous to give us all this money, but it's such a loaded word, royal, because he was about to become king, maybe. And Antony, again, not quite done. He says, hear me with patience. And someone says, peace, ho, like be quiet over there. Because it turns out he isn't done reading the will. Antony goes on. He says, moreover, he hath left you all his walks, his private arbors and new planted orchards on this side Tiber. So moreover, on top of that money, he hath left you all his walks. Walks are like garden pathways, or maybe just the gardens themselves. His private arbors. Arbors are like shady, tree-lined retreats. This is rich guy stuff. And new planted orchards. Orchards can be fruit orchards in our modern sense, or they can refer to tree gardens in general. So all of those beautiful parks on this side Tiber, this side of the river Tiber. He hath left them you and to your heirs forever. Common pleasures to walk abroad and recreate yourselves. He's left them you. In other words, he's left them to you and to your heirs forever, to your kids too. It's not just one generation. These are common pleasures, common in the sense of public, like of the common people, and pleasures, pleasing places to be in, sort of like public grounds, to walk abroad, not abroad in our modern sense of outside the country, more like outside of the house. So it's a place for you to walk outside and recreate yourselves. We certainly have this sense of recreation, but think about what the word actually is. It's recreate, as in refresh or renew yourselves. So not only do they have money, they have these unbelievable parks to renew themselves after their hard day's work. Caesar was amazing. He's given them so much, and Antony is finally ready to let the wave loose. And he has these two final phrases that do it. He says, here was a Caesar. Not Caesar, a Caesar. In this moment, he's really solidified the fact that Caesar has become a title. It's not just a man anymore, it's an idea. A Caesar. From now on, they're going to talk about a Caesar as a great man. And then, when comes such another? When comes another person like him? Or another Caesar like him? And this is the end of his speech. And it's been this incredibly shaggy-seeming speech with all these interruptions and twists and turns. But he's also used really formal rhetoric. He's just done it in a way that seems simple. Even at the end, here was a Caesar, when comes such another? these short little phrases. But clearly, this is a guy who knows his Aristotle, who studied rhetoric just as much as Brutus ever did, but he knows how to use it in a way that it doesn't sound quite so rhetoric-y. And he ends on a rhetorical question, literally. When comes such another? Well, turns out there's an answer. Someone yells out, never. 
never. And then another guy says, come away, away. Let's get out of here. We'll burn his body in the holy place and with the brands fire the traitor's houses. So we'll burn his body, Caesar's body, not to do disrespect, but this was how Roman funerals usually went, especially of important people, you would burn them. And they're going to burn him in the holy place, presumably a temple, almost like he's an animal sacrifice. Remember how the conspirators were going to make him a sacrifice? Well, I guess they've done it. And with the brands, brands are burning pieces of wood. We're going to fire the traitor's houses. Fire here means light on fire. So they're going to take the flaming wood from Caesar's funeral pyre, and they're going to use it to burn down the houses of the people who killed him. Now that's revenge. And someone says, take up the body. And another person has a similarly short statement, go fetch fire. So they're putting this plan into action. Somebody's taking the body. Someone's going to go get fire. Although I like that alliteration of fetch fire. Someone else says, pluck down benches. Pluck down like tear down or pull apart. Someone else says, pluck down forms, windows, anything. Forms are kind of like long benches. And windows here may refer to the shutters as opposed to the windows themselves. Anything that's made out of wood, basically, they're going to tear to pieces and use it to burn Caesar. And in turn, to burn down the houses of the conspirators. And with that, this giant mob picks up Caesar's body and goes off to take revenge. So Antony has them exactly where he wants them. And again, we see that same formula of a giant scene melting away and turning into a one or two person scene. And in this case, again, we have Antony left alone on stage. And he has a tiny little monologue here. He says, now let it work. Work here means something like take effect or go forward on its own. He's saying he started something that is now going to be self-sustaining. Let this chaos work. And then he goes on, mischief, thou art afoot. Afoot literally means on foot. Here it means something like on the move or rushing around. So you have mischief, which probably meant something a little stronger then than it does now. So mischief is on the move. Take thou what course thou wilt. Course here like course of action or path. So he's telling mischief, since it's on foot, to take whatever course it wants to, whatever thou wilt. So it really doesn't matter to him what happens now. He has released something that can only be good for him. Go wherever you want, mischief. And you can see again, he's using these short little statements, almost like Caesar did early in the play. So now we're seeing the real Antony, a guy we initially thought was kind of a party boy, then someone who seemed really emotional. And finally, he turns out to be incredibly canny and plotting. Not only did the conspirators underestimate him, we as an audience have kind of underestimated him. So to watch what he just did, we know we're looking at an incredible political manipulator. In some ways, maybe even a little better than Caesar was. And he's interrupted mid-line by a servant entering, maybe the same servant from before. He turns to him and says, how now, fellow? How now, as in what's going on? And fellow is sort of a common way to refer to someone of sort of lower social status than you. So the servant responds. He says, sir, Octavius is already come to Rome. Wow, that was fast. Weren't they going to send a message to him? But apparently he's here already. And Antony asks, where is he? The servant says, he and Lepidus are at Caesar's house. We'll get to know Lepidus soon, but suffice it to say, he's another one of Caesar's closest allies. Well, they're both at Caesar's house now, camping out. And Antony replies, and thither will I straight to visit him. Thither means to there. So to Caesar's house, will I straight. I will go at once to visit him. And then Antony has a little moment of musing. He says, he comes upon a wish. Upon a wish here means something like exactly as I wished or as if by a wish. So it's almost like he wished for Octavius to show up and here he is. He was just going to send him a message, but now he's here. It's perfect. He says, fortune is merry and in this mood will give us anything. Merry means like in a good mood or kind of jokey. But fortune, which is the goddess that decides how we do, apparently she's in a great mood. In this mood, she'll give us anything we want. And then the servant has more news. He says, 
I heard him say Brutus and Cassius are rid like madmen through the gates of Rome. So I heard him, presumably Octavius, say that Brutus and Cassius are rid, which means they have ridden off like madmen, like crazy people, through the gates of Rome. So they have fled the city. This is big news. Because remember, the mob was going to go burn Caesar's body and then go look for the conspirators. But apparently it's already too late. Somebody tipped them off to what was happening in the forum. And Antony says... Be like they had some notice of the people how I had moved them. Be like means most likely or perhaps. I guess they had some notice. They had some notification or like intelligence of the people how I had moved them. This is a slightly old-timey construction. It means of how I had moved the people. Moved meaning like inspired or even directed. So he's saying I guess they found out what I was doing to the people. And that's why they fled the city. So now it's really planning time, and he says to the servant, bring me to Octavius. So the plan is going into effect. They're going to try and figure out what to do now, because their enemies have fled the city. So now we have chaos and revenge in the streets. We have this new triumvirate of leaders put together with Antony and Octavius and Lepidus. And the play has taken kind of an amazing turn. Remember, it was all about these quiet moments of figuring out how best to govern and figuring out what to do in a bad circumstance. And now it's really turned into a power grab. No more careful consideration, all emotion and chaos. And that's the end of scene two, but now we enter scene three, which is a tiny little scene, sometimes cut from production, but I think incredibly important. And you have a character we've never seen before, this character called Cinna the Poet. And he has a little bit of a monologue. He says, I dreamt tonight that I did feast with Caesar, and things unluckily charge my fantasy. So I dreamt tonight, in other words, last night, that I did feast with Caesar. Like he had dinner with Caesar. And things unluckily. Things unluckily means bad omens. We might say it's something like unlucky things. They charge my fantasy. I love this verb charge. It's something you would use about loading a horse. It means to weigh down or overburden. And fantasy not in our modern sense, but something like imagination or creative mind. So my imagination is weighed down with bad omens. And he says, I have no will to wander forth of doors. Yet something leads me forth. I have no will, I have no desire to wander forth, to wander outside of doors. You also see that W alliteration, will and wander. So I don't really want to come outside, yet something leads me forth, something leads me outside. You see that repetition of forth? I have no will to wander forth of doors, yet something leads me forth. And that word forth is very loaded. Remember right before Caesar died, we had that refrain of, and Caesar shall go forth? Well, now it's here. And then a voice cuts off his line in the middle and finishes it. Someone says, what is your name? So what seems to have happened is this mob has come upon him. He's met them in the streets. You remember I talked in the introduction about the famous Orson Welles production? Well, in that production, it wasn't just a big giant mob. It was individual people coming out of the darkness to talk to him. And they start asking him questions. What is your name? Whither are you going? Whither meaning to where? Where do you dwell? Where do you live? Are you a married man or a bachelor? So remember, this mob was just going to go burn Caesar's pyre and destroy the houses. It was going to be very easy. But now they're questioning people in the streets. Who are you? Where are you going? Where are you from? Are you married? And then they escalate it. It's not questions anymore. Someone says, answer every man directly. Directly means like honestly or straightforwardly. And someone else chimes in, I and briefly. And then someone else says, I and wisely. And someone else says, I and truly you were best. So not just directly, but briefly, like without too many words, and wisely, and truly, you were best. You were best is something like, if you know what's good for you. So it turns pretty threatening, and Cinna doesn't know what to make of it. He says, what is my name? Whither am I going? Where do I dwell? Am I a married man or a bachelor? 
then to answer every man directly and briefly wisely and truly wisely i say i am a bachelor so he's picking up on all of their words and because he's a poet a writer he's punning on them so he takes their adverbs directly briefly wisely and truly wisely i say i am a bachelor there's a little bit of a joke in here it's a joke about marriage so he's saying i say wisely but he's also saying i am wise for still being a bachelor women right but of course mobs don't get jokes and someone says to him that's as much as to say they are fools that marry that's as much as means like that's the same as saying that they're fools that marry that people who marry are fools well yeah that was kind of the joke so what started as a joke suddenly turns ominous because the guy goes on to say you'll bear me a bang for that i fear bear me a bang has that cool alliteration of bees but it literally means you'll endure a beating from me for that for that comment i fear and he isn't actually afraid it means something like well i'm afraid you're gonna have to get beat up for that and he tells cinna proceed directly directly like without evasion or without any more joking and cinna tries to get serious but he can't help because the pun is still in his mind he says directly i am going to caesar's funeral so he takes that sense of directly meaning without evasion and he turns it into another sense like i'm going directly to caesar's funeral he's using that witty kind of banter that you'd find in a comedy of picking up on someone else's cue line and turning it into something different but it's not working on this mob because they keep questioning him as a friend or an enemy so why are you going to caesar's funeral are you a friend of caesar or an enemy and he says as a friend I think he's starting to get freaked out here. And someone says, that matter is answered directly. Oh, now he's telling us without joking. He's scared of us. And then someone else repeats another question. For your dwelling, briefly. The for here means something like as for, or even talk about. Tell us your dwelling. Tell us where you live. Briefly. And Sinna, not joking anymore, says, briefly, I dwell by the capital. By as in next to or near the capital, the Capitoline Hill. And they have one more piece of information to get out of him. Because they've used up all their adverbs by now. Someone says, your name, sir, truly. And Cinna replies, truly, my name is Cinna. And that was a bad move, because as you may remember, one of the conspirators was named Cinna. I mean, it's a common enough name. But when they hear that, the mob is not happy. They yell out, tear him to pieces. He's a conspirator. Not just kill him, tear him to pieces. This is mob violence. And Cinna is understandably freaked out. He replies, I am Cinna the poet. I am Cinna the poet. Not Sinna the Conspirator, Sinna the Poet, totally different guy. But because they're a mob, the mob doesn't care. They yell out, tear him for his bad verses. Tear him for his bad verses. Verses as in poetry. So he's not a conspirator? Who cares? Let's tear him to pieces because he's bad at poetry. That's the spirit of the mob. It's all about emotion. There's no reason involved. And Sinna's desperate by now. Things are getting bad. He says, I am not Sinna the Conspirator. But it's too late. Someone in the mob says, it is no matter. As in, it doesn't matter. His name, Cinna. Pluck but his name out of his heart and turn him going. Pluck but his name. Only tear his name out of his heart and turn him going. Turn him going means send him on his way. Well, that's literally an impossible thing. Tear just his name out of his heart and then send him on his way? You can't do that because his heart will be torn. And by now it's totally out of hand. Maybe they're tearing Cinna as we speak. The crowd yells out, tear him, tear him. And now this has become an orgy of violence. And they start calling for other violence. Remember where they're going. Someone yells, come brands, ho, fire brands. Brands again is that fiery piece of wood they're going to use to burn. Ho, hey, over there. Fire brands. Like bring them over here. To Brutus's, to Cassius's, burn all. Presumably this means to Brutus's house, to Cassius's house. Burn them all. Some to Decius's house. And some to Casca's. Some to Ligarius's. So they're sending off these teams to each of the conspirators' houses. Away, go. 
So it's a total mob scene. Some people actually stage the death of Cinna on stage, which can be pretty intense, where you literally watch a person torn to pieces by a mob for literally no reason. And sometimes people will actually laugh at this scene. There's a weird bit of tragic comedy going on because you're watching a mob murder of an innocent person. But it's also incredibly strange and goofy. There's a kind of nervous laughter throughout all this. This is what happens when a mob gets loose. And why all this business about Cinna the name? Well, think about it. This is a play in many ways about the power of Caesar's name over his physical being. And in this scene, you have someone killed over their name and literally nothing else about them. It's that detachment of someone's name or the idea of someone from their physical body. This scene is such a weird culmination of the forum scene about the power of words there that I think it really is one of the most unsettling and cool scenes in the entire play. So please don't cut it. Just remember to make it super weird. So as Act 4 begins, the conspirators have all skipped town, the mob has done its worst, presumably they've burned down the houses of the conspirators, and we get a much quieter scene, but a very violent scene nonetheless, which is that we go inside what we assume is Caesar's house, because remember Antony was going there? And we see Antony and Octavius and this guy Lepidus meeting together. And I want you to watch what Antony has become in this scene, because in some ways it's a character very unlike the person we met earlier in the play. It reminds me a lot of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketch, which is this one about President Reagan, who was always portrayed as this very sort of doddering old guy, good old Ronnie. And you have this sketch where Phil Hartman plays him as a kind of mad genius behind the scenes. So whenever there's any sort of public face, like when the Girl Scouts come to visit for the day, he plays the doddering grandpa. And then as soon as the door shuts, he becomes an evil mastermind, ordering people around. And it's very different from the public face. And Antony, we've recently found out, and we really find out in this scene, is a much more dastardly operator than the guy we originally met. And look at the first thing he says in Act 4, Scene 1. He says, These many then shall die. So whereas we just left behind a scene of mob violence, of someone literally being torn apart by a mob that got worked up, this is an almost gentlemanly scene of violence. He says, These many then shall die. Their names are pricked. We saw this word pricked before. It means like marked down on a list. This is violence by paperwork. Just going over a list of people who are going to die. And Octavius looks at the list and says, Your brother too must die. Consent you, Lepidus? So Lepidus's brother is on this list. Do you consent? And Lepidus says, I do consent. Very simple. We don't know what emotion is happening behind that statement. And Octavius finishes his verse line. He says, Prick him down, Antony. Mark him down. But Lepidus has one condition. He says, Upon condition Publius shall not live, who is your sister's son, Mark Antony. So I do consent, but actually Octavius seems to have interrupted him in the middle of the sentence. I consent on my brother's death as long as Publius dies, who's Mark Antony's nephew. And you know what? Antony's fine with that. He says, He shall not live. He's as good as dead. Look, with a spot I damn him. With a spot, here like a black mark, one of those pricks on the list. I damn him, in the sense of condemn, but also in the sense of God judging people to die and go to hell. Look how easy that is. Look how casual it is. With a spot, I damn him. We don't know how long this list is, but there must be dozens or hundreds of people on it that they're just casually marking for death. And this is the kind of bureaucratic work that the conspirators never did. They should have had a list of Caesar's allies to kill. Number one on that list should have been Mark Antony, but you can't say Cassius didn't warn them. It was all about ideas for them. It was all about doing right. And when these guys get together, the first thing they do, they make sure no one can hurt them and that all those guys die immediately. And now that that's taken care of, Antony has a job for Lepidus. He says, but Lepidus, go you to Caesar's house. 
So are they at Caesar's house? Are they not? There's no way to know. Where are they? Maybe they're at a house that Octavius owns. Maybe they're at Antony's house. Who knows? He says, fetch the will hither, and we shall determine how to cut off some charge in legacies. Fetch the will hither, bring the will here, and we shall determine how to cut off some charge. Charge means like expense or cost in legacies. Legacies are items left in a will. Whoa, this is even more dastardly. We're going to go get Caesar's will, and we're going to figure out how to restrict some of the things he gave away so that maybe we can have more money. That might well include anything he left to the common people. It's an incredibly fast turnaround from these public promises he was making to this private maneuvering. This Antony is just a shark. So Lepidus takes the assignment and he says, what, shall I find you here? And Octavius replies, or here or at the Capitol. This or-or construction is like our either-or, so we'll either be here or we'll be at the Capitol. And Lepidus goes to get the will. He goes to do an errand. And as soon as Lepidus leaves, Antony's tone changes again. He turns to Octavius and says, this is a slight, unmeritable man, meet to be sent on errands. Whoa, that's cold, Antony. This is a slight, slight meaning like lightweight or worthless, unmeritable man. Unmeritable means undeserving. Oof. So this guy is a total lightweight. In fact, he's meet to be sent on errands. Meet meaning appropriate or fit only to be sent on errands. He's an errand boy, basically. That's all he's good for. And Antony starts to rant even more. He says, is it fit the threefold world divided? He should stand one of the three to share it? So is it fit, is it right or appropriate, the threefold world divided? Well, these three guys, these triumvirs, are splitting up the parts of the empire they'll control. And the Roman world was basically loosely separated into three parts. The west, which includes most of Europe, the east, which is sort of the Asian side, and then North Africa. So is it right that if we divide up the world into three, he should stand? In other words, he should be placed as or stand as one of the three to share it? Like you're splitting the world itself, the empire, in three parts, and this guy gets a part? That doesn't seem right. Octavius interrupts him. He finishes his line. He says, so you thought him, and took his voice who should be pricked to die in our black sentence and prescription. So you thought him. You considered him so. You considered him worthy of one of the parts of the world. And not only that, you took his voice, his voice meaning his opinion or his vote, on who should be pricked to die, who should be marked out or selected to die in our black sentence. Black referring to death, like our deadly sentence, and prescription. Prescription means condemnation. And you could condemn someone either to die or to go on to exile. So you thought him deserving of part of the world, and you gave him a voice in who we decided would live and die. And remember again, Octavius is like 17 years old in this scene, and there's something kind of innocent about him here. He sees all this awful behind-the-scenes maneuvering that Antony's doing, and he's learning, just in the same way that he learned from watching his great-uncle Caesar, but he has some real questions. And remember, this isn't just academic. This guy is going to turn into the first emperor of Rome. He's going to turn into a major character in Antony and Cleopatra. Shakespeare's laying the groundwork for a really interesting character here. And I think it's important for him to start out somewhat innocent here. He's like, you're just going to cut this guy off after you said all these great things about him? And Antony's pretty condescending. His reply is, Octavius, I have seen more days than you. And though we lay these honors on this man to ease ourselves of diverse slanderous loads, he shall but bear them as the ass bears gold, to groan and sweat under the business, either led or driven, as we point the way. And having brought our treasure where we will... Then take we down his load and turn him off like to the empty ass to shake his ears and graze in commons. I mean, this is all basically one long thought here. 
you can sort of see him leaning back and drinking and smoking cigar and putting his feet up and saying, Octavius, I've seen more days than you. I've been around a while. Let me explain to you how things are done. Though we lay these honors on this man, so although we're putting these important honors on Telepidus to ease ourselves of diverse slanderous loads, diverse here like various, and slanderous loads in some ways are kind of reversed. It's more like loady slanders. It means like burdensome accusations. So the slanders that are done to us, they're very heavy. So why are we giving honors to Lepidus? Well, it's because we need him to bear some of the blame. So although we do that, he shall but bear them as the ass bears gold. Bear means like to carry or hold. He's going to carry them the same way the ass, in other words, the donkey, carries gold. To groan and sweat under the business. Business like the task at hand. And you can really picture a person, or in this case a donkey, groaning and sweating under a load of business either led or driven as we point the way. Led or driven are the two ways you move a beast of burden. Led means like pulled by a rope from the nose, or driven, pushed forward from the back by whipping. And they go as we point the way. They go exactly where we want them to go. So Lepidus is carrying this business wherever they want them to go, and having brought our treasure where we will, where we will means where we want it to go, then take we down his load and turn him off. Turn him off here means something like out to pasture. So as soon as he's done all the hard work of carrying this, well, then we take the gold off of his back and we send him out to pasture, like to the empty ass. Empty here means unburdened, like with the burden taken off his back, but there's a little bit of a pun too on empty-headed and ass in the sense of idiot. So just like an unburdened donkey, but also just like an empty-headed dummy, he's going off to shake his ears and graze in commons. Commons are public pasture land. Shake your ears could actually be an insult you'd say to someone, like shake your donkey ears. But it's a pretty impressive, long kind of allegory of what they're going to use Lepidus for and then how they're going to get rid of him when he's no longer useful. And Octavius hears that and he actually cuts him off at the end. He finishes his verse line. He says, you may do your will, but he's a tried and valiant soldier. So you may do your will, you may do whatever you want, but he's a tried, in other words, a tested and valiant, a brave soldier. So it's not very nice of you to act that way to someone like that. And Antony takes the cue of tried and valiant soldier, and he says, So is my horse, Octavius, and for that I do appoint him store of provender. So my horse is also a tried and valiant soldier, and for that, because he is, I do appoint him, in other words, I grant him or give him, a store, which means like a quantity or a good amount, of provender. Provender is any animal feed. Yeah, I feed him. It is a creature that I teach to fight, to wind, to stop, to run directly on, his corporal motion governed by my spirit. So it is a creature, in other words, my horse. I teach him how to fight, to wind, which means to wheel around on horseback, to stop, to run directly on, in other words, to run straight ahead. So basically he trains him how to do all these things. His corporal motion, corporal meaning bodily, governed by my spirit. Governed means controlled. So the body of my horse is controlled by my mind or ideas. He has no will of his own, really. I teach him how to do these things and I decide what he does. And in some taste is Lepidus but so. So in some taste, in some degree or measure, Lepidus is but so, only that way. I also control his body with my mind. He must be taught and trained and bid go forth. In the same way as a horse, he must be taught and trained, you get that cool T alliteration, and bid go forth, told to go out, just as he just was. Lepidus, you go get the will. A barren-spirited fellow, one that feeds on objects, arts, and imitations, which, out of use and staled by other men, begin his fashion. So he's really grinding in the boot here. A barren-spirited fellow. Barren-spirited meaning empty-headed or without much initiative of his own. 
Remember he said his horse was governed by his own spirit, not the horse's? Well, in the same way, Lepidus is a barren-spirited fellow. He can't make any of his own mind up. One that feeds on objects. Objects are like spectacles or curiosities. Arts, and not just like dancing or music, but anything that's kind of artificial or contrived. And imitations. Imitations like counterfeits or unoriginal things which out of use and staled by other men, I like that word staled. It means worn out or used up, like gone stale, like a loaf of bread. So they're no longer being used by other men. That's when they begin his fashion. That's where he starts with his own fashion. So he feeds on these things that have already been used up by other people. He only likes something when it's popular with everybody else and they've already gotten done with it. That's how barren spirited he is. And he has one final piece of advice for Octavius. He says, do not talk of him, but as a property. So don't say anything about him except as a property. This is actually where we get the word prop. It means any sort of hand tool you can use. So stage props are stage properties. So he's just a thing. I don't want you to talk about him as a person ever again. Good? Cool. And now, Octavius, listen great things. Listen here means like listen to or pay attention to. We're going to talk about important stuff now. Enough of this Lepidus loser. I mean, this is harsh, man. And it's part of the ongoing education of Octavius the Statesman. So what are these great things? Brutus and Cassius are levying powers. Levying powers means raising armies. So remember they hightailed it out of Rome? Well, now that they're out of Rome, they're getting an army together. We must straight make head. Straight means straight away or at once, immediately. We have to make head, which is an expression that means get together an army of our own. Oh, these are great things. Okay. Therefore, let our alliance be combined, our best friends made, our means stretched, and let us presently go sit in council how covert matters may be best disclosed and open perils surest answer it. Let our alliance be combined. And combined here can mean intertwined or it can even mean strengthened. So let the alliance between the two of us really be strengthened. Our best friends made. Let's figure out who our real friends are. Our means stretched. Let's extend our own resources as far as they will go to raise this army. And let us presently, presently as in immediately or right now, go sit in council. Let's plan together. Let's consider together how covert matters may be best disclosed. Covert meaning hidden or secret. How these secret matters may be best disclosed, meaning revealed or uncovered. So maybe they're trying to figure out who's on their side and who isn't. All these secrets they have to uncover. And open perils, open perils being dangers that are out in the open, unlike the covert matters. Surest, meaning most safely or securely, answer it. Answer it meaning responded to. So we have to uncover the secret stuff and respond to the open stuff. And Octavius agrees. He says, let us do so, for we are at the stake and bayed about with many enemies, and some that smile have in their hearts, I fear, millions of mischiefs. So let's do all those things. Why? For we are at the stake. It's an expression that means under attack, and it comes from the world of bear baiting, which was one of the entertainments that was happening next door to the theater. So bear baiting was this incredibly cruel and entertaining thing they used to do where you would tie a bear to a stake and then have dogs attack him from all sides. It's animal fighting. So now Octavius is saying that he and Antony are at the stake. They're the bear and they're being bayed about. Bayed about means surrounded on all sides like by barking dogs. And this is actually a bit of a throwback to the way that Antony talked about Caesar's death. He says, here were you bayed? You were surrounded by your enemies? Well, now we're surrounded by our enemies. And some that smile, so some people that smile, have in their hearts, I fear, millions of mischiefs. Mischiefs, not just like mischievous deeds, more like evil deeds. I love this expression, millions of mischiefs. So they're smiling on the outside, but inside, 
millions of mischiefs. You can hear the alliteration of M and M, but it really gives you a sense that Rome is dangerous for them. They're surrounded by enemies, people are plotting against them, they have to set this up carefully. So by the end of this scene, you're seeing Octavius learning and growing as a result of Antony's tutelage. Now what we're going to see in Antony and Cleopatra in a few years is that he's going to start turning some of Antony's lessons against him, which is going to be very cool. So what's set up at the end of the scene, in addition to how cutthroat Antony is and how formidable Octavius is too, is basically how we're going to spend the last two acts of this play. Brutus and Cassius are raising an army. Antony and Octavius are going to have to figure out how to defeat them. That's the end of part four of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. In the next part, we'll see how this showdown is coming together between the two sides. This is the aftermath of Caesar's assassination, but Caesar is still very much going to be a presence here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe on iTunes. And if you really like it, please leave a good review. Also, this podcast takes a lot of time and effort on my part to create, and I'd appreciate any support you could give. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make the podcast possible. Thanks a lot. Bye.